Kirby Smart is an all-timer. And that's how we're going to start off today's fourth string podcast. Um, ben, not with us today. He is, he's in France, like kicking it up. Uh, I was going to say with the queen, but I think that's England. I'm not sure what France has, but he's over in France um, for a couple of weeks. He'll be back, I believe, next week. Um, and we are planning on once we get into July, we're going to start kicking off our preview. So we're going to have our top 10 preview coming up. That's always one of my favorite episodes that we do. And uh, today, uh, later on, I'm going to give you my championship belt. So I think every year there's somewhere around eight teams that are truly capable of winning the championship. And I got to be honest this year, I, I'm not even 100% sure there's eight. So I'm going to give you that later, but that's different than the top 10 that I'll give you guys in a couple of weeks, which I'll explain that too. Um, I want to start off though, talking about Kirby Smart and if he's an all-timer. Because I was having this discussion with somebody else. I said, is Kirby Smart one of the all, like when it's all said, now, will he, when he retires, Will he be one of the all-time greats? Because I'd make the argument he could step away right now, and I think he would be one of the all-time greats. And I met dinner with a friend, and he says, "Well, like he—he's great because he always recruits really well." And my thought was, well, "You say that like it's a bad thing. Like, is and I don't understand. Like, we give away like these Coach of the Year awards and everything else, and." We always give it away. Like, I think Sonny Dykes won it this past year, and I mean, that's great. Like, what he did first year at TCU is great. But we always give away, like, that Coach of the Year award based on who did more with less in terms of, like, their roster. But doesn't that – doesn't that – isn't that against the whole process of recruiting? And don't we all believe that you need to be a good recruiter? Uh, to be a good head coach like isn't that a big part of being a coach so i don't understand why we would penalize somebody for being a really elite recruiter and the other thing about kirby smart that i think people fail to realize is when he took over georgia it was coming off of mark rick georgia had been a really competitive team but they almost seemingly would fall short they lose a game to south carolina they lose a game to florida they lose a game to alabama they could never really take that next step and kirby smart has not only taken that next step i mean if you were to say who's the favorite to win the 2023 playoff i think just about everybody would say well it's georgia again and by the way, I think I would absolutely agree with the fact that it's Georgia. So, I mean, and by the way, imagine for a minute, like if I said Georgia winning the 2023 national championship, you would say, I could see it, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't seem crazy. But if I said Georgia could three-peat, how many coaches in the history of the sport have three-peated? In the history of sports, period have three-peated not many and if you think about okay georgia's the favorite to win it this year well what you're really saying is is georgia is a favorite to three-peat we've not had a lot of that in sports like we always talk about pete carroll being one of the best coaches in the history of college football well pete carroll won two national championships at usc historically one of the biggest and best um college football programs in the country Yet Kirby Smart goes to Georgia, and granted, it's not like he took over Vanderbilt and won a bunch of championships. Like Georgia's still a good program, but what he has built there is incredible. And he's taken what was already a really good program and he's turned it into this is now one of the premier four or five programs in the country. Georgia wasn't that before he went there. And I'm not really sure 
like even what else to compare it to? Like you could say, okay, well, would this be similar to Venables doing this at Oklahoma? And I would say, actually, this is even more impressive than if Venables were to take Oklahoma and win a bunch of national championships because Oklahoma's history is actually a heck of a lot stronger than Georgia's. So think about this. I'll pull up this list here. Here's a list of coaches that have won multiple national championships. By the way, the list is not long. There's nine or there's uh 22 coaches rather, 22 coaches on this list altogether. So the fact that Kirby Smart's won multiple means he has to go into the top 22 coaches all the time. But here's a list. Um Dabo Sweeney, Joe Paterno, Dennis Erickson, uh, Bob Devaney, Pete Carroll, Bobby Bowden, Red Blake, Bud Wilkinson, Daryl Royal, Pop Warner, Barry Switzer, Nut Rockney, Tom Osborne, Urban Meyer, Howard Jones, Walter Camp, John McKay, Frank Leahy, Bernie Bierman, Woody Hayes, Bear Bryant, and Nick Saban. That's the list. Name one coach on that list who is not an all-time great. Like an all-timer. Like, I, I can't think of it. Um, and, you know, Dabo, I still think, is one of the best coaches in the game. I know the past couple of years have been like, okay, what's going on with Clemson? Which, actually, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But, like, every other coach on this list, all-timer. And I think Kirby Smart has established him that. And I don't think, by the way, like, I would be extremely shocked if Kirby Smart ends his career with only two national championships, unless he's just going to retire really soon and decide he's done. But I, I think he's on pace to be one of the top five, top 10 coaches in literally the history of the sport. And we need to appreciate that for what it is like Nick Saban's probably going to step away. I mean, who knows when it will be maybe five, maybe 10 years. It's uh, somewhere probably in that neighborhood or less. And when he does, there's been like this question of, okay, who's the next great that's going to come behind Nick and be, you know, that guy that just is like the constant enemy. Like you're always trying to beat him. And I think it's going to be Kirby smart. I think he is the next great, like Nick Saban esque um, college football coach. And he may very well take his third national championship this year. Um, all right, let's move on. Coaches that are on the hot seat, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, something we keep talking about uh, with uh, with this particular issue is Jimbo Fisher. He continues to come up. Uh, this is really about the third straight year, I'd say, we've mentioned his name being on this list. And, you know, the interesting thing is Jimbo has survived as long as he has. Uh, quite simply because he recruits really, really well. I mean, 2022, they had the number one class in the country. But what's interesting is, is their 2023 class only finished off ranked 15th. And again, 15th is not bad, but you're behind teams like Oregon. You're behind teams like um, Florida. Uh, you're behind teams like Clemson. Um, you're behind Tennessee. And I, I mean, really... You start looking at the SEC teams, they're behind Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Oklahoma, LSU, uh, Tennessee, Florida. Like you're saying 15th isn't great, but you're really 
middle of the pack in the SEC. And 16th, by the way, is South Carolina. So you're really, with that 2023 class, you're on pace with what South Carolina is doing. And then you look at 2024's class in Texas A&M, which, I mean, this is real early, but Texas A&M currently is in 29th right now in that 2024 class, according to 247 Sports. Now, they've only signed 10, they only have 10 commits. So, I mean, they're probably going to get about another eight to 10 more. You would think a couple of those will be five stars. But the point is, is the saving grace for Jimbo Fisher has been his recruiting. And if this, if next year's class finishes with 2023, the recruiting isn't all that great. It's pretty vanilla if that's going to be your saving grace. And then if you look at his actual win-loss record, five and seven last year, not even in a bowl. Uh, 2019, they finished off the year unranked 2021. They finished off the year 25th. So they've only had one really like, oh, that was a great year for them. And that was COVID year 2020 nine and one. And I don't know if we are, if we've established that COVID year is like the asterisk year or not, but he had, he's had one good year at Texas A&M. And then let's go look at Florida state. What he did there, his last year, they finished off five and six missed a bowl. Florida state and Texas A&M are two of the most historical programs in the history of college football. And in both places, Jimbo Fisher has a year where he finished with a losing record and completely missed a bowl. I mean, we've got Duke going to bowl games. We have Missouri. Like, I think Eli Drinkwitz has made a bowl at Missouri every single year he's been there. But we have Oregon State going to bowl games. We have Kansas getting into bowl games. You're telling me that Texas A&M can't get into a bowl game. And Florida State can't get into a bowl game. I think it's time to acknowledge that Jimbo Fisher's recruiting can't continue to be his saving grace. At some point, if Texas A&M wants to say we are on the same uh, level as an Alabama or we're on the same level as a uh, Florida or you're on the same level of any of these other teams, at some point, You've got to look at Jimbo Fisher and say, this isn't good enough. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than this for Texas A&M. Since R.C. Slocum was there, this really hasn't been the same program. And it makes you wonder, were they only ever great because of just a couple of coaches that came along in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? They had one great kind of stretch there, just like Miami had one great stretch, just like Ole Miss at one point had a great stretch. But since then, Texas A&M has not been this dominant program they pretend to be. Kevin Sumlin came in. He's actually won about the same as Jimbo Fisher. Actually, Kevin Sumlin has a better winning percentage than Jimbo Fisher did. Mike Sherman before Kevin Sumlin was 500. Dennis Franchione before Mike Sherman was just over 500. Texas A&M going back to the 90s has been a just over 500 program. Kevin Sumlin since R.C. Slocum, who retired in 2002, Kevin Sumlin has the best winning percentage of any coach to go to coach there. Like, I do think we need to acknowledge Jimbo Fisher needs to be on the hot seat. 
it is time that they make a big time decision. But it might also be time to look at Texas A&M and say, this is not a tier one or even a tier two program. This is a tier three program. This isn't Auburn. Texas A&M is much closer to Mississippi State than they are Auburn. Is that a ridiculous statement to make? I don't think it is. Because if you look at the results, why is it they either can't hire the right coach or the coaches they're hiring can't win there? I, I don't know the answer to it. So Jimbo Fisher has got to be on the hot seat if Texas A&M is going to continue to claim they're one of the premier programs in college football. I also think it's really important too, looking at the future for Texas A&M, you've got Texas, you got Oklahoma coming into this conference. Um, if you are not careful, those two programs are both going to pass you up. And I don't know that they ever get to like Georgia or Alabama status, but I mean, Texas A&M is in the territory of if they don't make the right move at coach, they're going to fall into the bottom third of the SEC. That's just where they are. Like if I said, looking at the coaches right now in the SEC, where does Jimbo Fisher even rank? I'd say he's probably somewhere around ninth or 10th. He's somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so he has to go into this year on the hot seat. You definitely can't miss a ball. Whenever you're talking about hot seat coaches, they'll always like to wonder, okay, well, what's the threshold to where they're safe? I think Texas A&M has to be a minimum of eight and four or better for Jimbo to be safe. That's the minimum. All right. Here's the next coach, uh, Brent Pry, um, over at Virginia tech. Uh, look, nobody expected Virginia Tech to be a great team last year. Uh, they just didn't come in with high expectations. Justin Fuente um, really did a number on them in recruiting, not in a good way, by the way. They, I mean, they've been awful past several years in recruiting. So, you know, it was really, really important um, that he find a way to improve that. And I think, again, the expectations weren't high, but it's one thing for the expectations to not be high. And it's another thing for him to go in there and only win three games. You can't go three and eight on the year and expect that to be okay. So this year, I think Virginia tech, I think Brent Pry needs to win seven games or more to keep that job. It's just not good enough at a program like Virginia tech to not be in a bowl game literally every year. That that's the minimum threshold. Get us to a bowl game. Every year he gets this one freebie, but that's it. And the other thing I think Virginia Tech has to look at too is this team is just it, it forget the com competitiveness for it for a minute. They're not even fun to watch. The offense has no identity. I don't get it. The defense plays bend and don't break, which is fine, but it doesn't create any opportunities like a bend and don't break defense works if you have an offense that can answer on the other end. But if you don't have that, you have to be aggressive on defense to generate turnovers. You have to be aggressive on defense to generate better field position. You can't play bend and don't break and expect to win a bunch of games unless you have an elite offense and they just don't have it at all. Um, and Virginia Tech wasn't particularly young last year either. Not that they were a super experienced team, but if you said, okay, this year is going to be different. Well, why? They don't have a superstar transfer coming in. In fact, they lost some players. Um, they haven't had a great recruiting class. And 
I don't know, I'd say probably seven or eight years. They, they really haven't. What is it about this year that's going to be different? Um, I think Brent Pry, just to be quite honest with you, I think he was probably the wrong hire. I think they hired him because it felt like, okay, he's a culture fit with Virginia Tech. And that's fine. But the guy doesn't really know offense. He plays, I think, the wrong – I think his game plan is the wrong type of game plan. And he feels like he doesn't have total control over that sideline. Like, if there's any coach that I said lifetime coordinator or capable head coach, he feels like a lifetime coordinator to me. Um so I think for Virginia Tech this year, he's got to find a way to get them to seven wins. And the last piece about Virginia Tech is if you look at the conference realignment that's happening, it's starting to appear pretty evident that North Carolina and Virginia might be heading to the SEC. Duke might be heading to the Big Ten. And there's going to and Clemson's probably going to head out and Florida State's going to head out. And who knows what happens with Miami And Virginia Tech doesn't have like this super attractive market. So you've got to build up a really good football program that other conferences are going to want right now. What conference would want three and eight Virginia Tech? It's not fun. They don't win. There's no creativity. There's no identity. Nobody wants to watch that. Um, so he's going on the hot seat. Here's another one. And it's not far away from Virginia Tech either. Neil Brown at West Virginia. Neil Brown has been at West Virginia now. This will be year number five for him. Year five. And at West Virginia, he's had one year where he has won more games than he's lost. And again, it was COVID year. And they went six and four, and they finished fifth in their conference. Not one year has he finished better than fifth in the Big 12. Not one year. When West Virginia went to the Big 12, there was all of this hype over, finally, we're going into a big conference. Finally, we're going to be appreciated more than our neighbors of the state of Virginia and our neighbors to the north in Ohio and Kentucky and Louisville. Finally, we're going to get that. And they've gone into the Big 12, and they really haven't done anything since they got there and neil brown has taken what was once a super fun competitive team the rivals with pittsburgh too and he can't get any momentum going there just none and if i said look at the big 12 this year where we've got central florida coming in we have cincinnati coming in we have houston coming into the conference this year and i said who's the worst team in the big 12 I think you'd have to say West Virginia. Now you could say, okay, well, what about Kansas? But if you ask me, Neil Brown or Lance Leopold today, who I think is the better coach, I think it's Lance Leopold. Like, I think Neil Brown is by far the worst coach in the Big 12. West Virginia is another program. Five to six wins a year. I don't care that you're in a tougher conference than you used to be. The whole point of you being in there is supposed to be competitive. He's got to find a way this year to win seven or more games. And West Virginia has to find a way to be a really competitive football team this year. Our schedule, by the way, it's not pretty. Like, he could be gone. I think he could be gone by, like, week six. They start off at Penn State. That's a loss. They're going to play Pittsburgh at home. Now, the backyard ball is always one of the most insane, fun rivalries in college football. I freaking love the fact that that's a night game. It's going to be absolutely intense. But 
Pittsburgh is a well-coached football team that doesn't have an issue winning road games. I, I, I would pick them right now. Like I, w- I would throw a, a hundred bucks on them to win that game right now over West Virginia. Um, that to me feels like a loss. So they beat Duquesne. They lose to Penn State. They lose to Pittsburgh. Then they're going to play Texas Tech. Now that's at home. But Texas Tech is a team that knocked off Texas last year. It's not a bad team. That feels like a loss. So now they're one and three, and their only win is against Duquesne. They're going to follow that up by going to TCU, who was just in the national championship game. They're one and four. They're not winning that game. West Virginia, if they start the year off one and four, and that game September 30th. Between that game at TCU and October 12th, they're going to Houston. They get a bye week. And after Houston, because that game's on a Thursday night, their next game isn't until nine days later, and it'll be at home against Oklahoma State. Between TCU and Houston is the perfect time to move on from Neil Brown. If there's any coach I feel confident isn't making it through the end of the year, it is Neil Brown. Even if he finds a way to get past the TCU game relatively unscathed, which what is that? Is that like two and three? I mean, I I just don't see how they win a bunch of games there. They're still going to have to go at Houston, Oklahoma State at home, at Central Florida, at Oklahoma, Cincinnati at home, and at Baylor. There's just, if you pull up this West Virginia schedule, there are not a lot of wins. I don't see any way they get to a bowl game this year. He's got to go at the end of the year. This program needs momentum. They need some recruiting. It can't be Neil Brown forever. All right, next one. This one I feel a little bit less, uh, um, a little bit less confident about. Brent Venables at Oklahoma. Um, Brent Venables. I thought he was the wrong hire last year. They went and hired a defensive coordinator who felt like. Maybe, I mean, what's the deal with Venables and Dabo? Like, did Dabo just lose control of his locker room and it not leak or something? I mean, it felt like those two guys were so, um, you know, one and two, like it was Batman and Robin. And you just, when you have those scenarios, you don't see Robin leave a lot. Like, remember Frank Beamer and Bud Foster at Virginia Tech? Like, Bud Foster got offers over and over and over. I vividly remember South Carolina trying to hire Bud Foster. It's like, I'm not leaving. Um, and we've seen that those types of tandems happen before where the coordinators stay and Venables for years and years, not leaving Clemson, not leaving Clemson, not leaving Clemson. I know it's Oklahoma, but why is it all of a sudden his name was in that running? And then the second he gets a job, boom, he's gone. I think there had to have been something going on there. And again, if you watch Oklahoma last year, just no identity, none. In the defense at times didn't even look good. Like I think didn't Texas put up 50 points on them? Like if you're going to hire a defensive coach, that's fine. But the defense at least has to be competent. It can't be bad. And last year, Oklahoma's defense was just bad. Um, I think this year, we're going to pull up their schedule here. I think this year, um, Venables has to win, I'd say a minimum of eight games. Um, a minimum of eight games for him to keep his job safe. So let's look at their schedule. Um, so we're gonna start off the year with Arkansas State. Yeah, they're not losing that one. Um, let's see. I just lost my leak here. Uh, they're gonna get SMU uh, at home. Now that's not an automatic win by any means. SMU is probably the best Group of Five team 
in the country going into this year. That's not an automatic win at all. So, uh, but let's just say they win that. They're going to get Tulsa, another tough game. When that they get Cincinnati, that's in Cincinnati. So at Tulsa, at Cincinnati, then they're going to play Iowa State, Texas, Central Florida, Kansas, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, BYU, and then they're going to end the year with TCU at home on a Friday night. There's definitely some wins in there for Oklahoma, absolutely, which means, again, if they, it, by the way, if they lose to Tulsa, like, could you imagine if Oklahoma loses to in-state Tulsa group of five team? Um, it, that would be that would be utterly embarrassing. Um, I think the pressure is even more on Brent Venables to win at least eight games this year, potentially even nine, to avoid getting canned. And the other thing is, is as you're going into the SEC for Oklahoma, don't you have to look at this like, all right, if Miami keeps their coach, they keep Cristobal. And if, um, which we'll get to in a second, I, I think Cristobal has to be on the hot seat as well. But if they keep Cristobal and uh, if, uh, let's see, Texas keeps Sarkeesian and if Texas A&M keeps Jimbo Fisher, what does that mean for Oklahoma if they move off of Brent Venables? That means if they move off of him, they're going to have access to the best available coach. That's what you want. Part of the reason why USC got Lincoln Riley is when they moved off of them, they there weren't really many other competitors for him. They had access to the best available coach. That's where Oklahoma needs to be. Um, so I think if Venables, again, if he's not a minimum of eight wins and you're going into the SEC, you got to think about moving on. And then the last one, let's go to Mel Tucker. So Mel Tucker at Michigan State. Um, Mel Tucker went and... I honestly thought this was, was super interesting. He went five and seven at Colorado. Now five and seven at Colorado feels like, oh man, if you could do that, you could do anything. But going into 2019, Colorado was actually coming off of a decent year. He takes them, they go five and seven. And his first year at Michigan State, they go two and five. And then 2021, that was uh that was the COVID year. And then 2021, they go eleven and two. And all of a sudden, okay, eleven and two, we beat Michigan. Boy, you really got to be excited about that. And then you go into 2022, last year. A lot of expectations for this Michigan State team. A lot of people had them in their top 10. They finished 5-7. and seven. They were obliterated by Michigan State, or by Michigan. Um, and so now you start looking at Mel Tucker, who's been a coach for four years. In those four years, he has had one winning season. One. That's it. Actually, at Michigan State, he has a losing conference record. A losing conference record. And then here's the real kicker. Look at how they're recruiting right now. Michigan State is down at 23rd last year's recruiting class. This year's recruiting class. Let's pull this up. They're down at 24th. And they've signed already 16 commits, which means that class isn't getting much better. Sometimes you see classes ranked a little low because they've only signed like five or six players. They've already signed 26 players or 19 players for this year's class. It's not looking good. And then let, there's the 2024 class. Where is Michigan State ranked on that? So the 2024 class, Michigan State is actually ranked 59th. So 24th for 2023, 59th for 2024. That's unacceptable. That's down near Boston College and Indiana level. If that is where you are, 
with USC and UCLA coming into your conference and you still can't win more than six games a year, it's time to move on. And it feels like, by the way, Jimbo Fisher has made Michigan State Michigan's little brother. Like, it feels like Michigan has already completely taken over that state, and it's only taken him a couple of years of Mel Tucker coming in for Michigan to do that. Uh, I think he's got to be another one on the hot seat. Now, his threshold is going to be a little bit less. I think Michigan State, he needs to get to about seven wins. Uh, that would secure his job, seven wins or more. I think six wins puts him on the fringe. Anything below six, Mel Tucker's got to go. All right, now let's go over to my championship belt. So I think every year, I think every year, there's about eight teams who are capable of winning the championship, somewhere around eight. In this year, I'm trying to put in eight, and honestly, I couldn't even get there. I've got six teams that I think are winning, capable of winning the championship. There's some teams that maybe if everything starts to go right, they could get in there and do it, but I'm just not super confident in either their schedule or their roster or there's something going on there. So let's talk about the six teams that I think are in this and can win it. The first is going to be Georgia. Look, uh, replacing Stetson Bennett, that's going to be one of the tougher things to do, but I think they'll figure that out. The only thing about Stetson Bennett is because he wasn't super mobile, Stetson Bennett was forced to stay disciplined in the pocket. And because he wasn't a five-star recruit, Stetson Bennett really wasn't afforded any flexibility to go off script, which means by default, he just kind of became like the most coachable quarterback in all of college football. I think that's why the Rams honestly took him. But this year, now you're bringing in some more talented guys. Who takes that quarterback position will be really interesting for Georgia. Um, I just think the amount of talent they have on this roster. I mean, this is another number one recruiting class coming in. They are just reloading guys. Georgia's going to be right there in the thick of it. Then you have Alabama. Um, Alabama, I tell you, it's really interesting. There are some people right now talking that it feel like they feel like Alabama has lost a step. No, I don't feel like that. They had the number one recruiting class uh, for 2023. Um, I think Jalen Milrow is, we, we saw some flashes of him last year. I think he's going to be, um, every bit as good as Bryce Young was. He is super, super talented. He might even go in the draft this year, um, because it's his third year. So he can go in the draft and, and I would not be surprised with that at all. I think the big player for them to replace is going to be Jameer Gibbs. But if Jace McClellan can come in and if he can be that go-to Alabama running back that we're so used to seeing back when Alabama was dominating the sport, I think Alabama could return right right there to where we're used to seeing them. Um, they've got a lot of talent, and they've got a lot of experience. Like, if you look at this roster, they probably only have room for maybe one freshman to come in and start. The rest of this is going to be a bunch of juniors, seniors. So I'm getting an experienced Alabama squad. I think they're going to be right there in the thick of it. By the way, uh, they don't have to go to Tennessee this year. They don't have to go to Texas A&M this year. They don't have to go to LSU this year. That's huge for them being able to get some of those bigger games at home and not have to play just a ridiculously tough road schedule. That's going to make things a lot easier for Alabama. Um, also, by the way, these aren't in, these are not in order, by the way. Um, my next one, Michigan. So Michigan has probably the best dual threat running back room I have 
ever seen. I mean, first you've got Blake Corum, who last year was one of the best players across the sport. And the fact that if you go and you look up Michigan today, there is a position battle between him and Donovan Edwards going on. I, I just I laugh at it. it. It's crazy to me. And then you have the quarterback room. So I'm bringing you're bringing in uh, Jack Tuttle. He's a transfer. Now he's not going to start. He'll be the backup, but he provides a ton of experience. And I get JJ McCarthy, the starter. That's fantastic. They've got tons of players on this defense as well. This might be one of the best defenses in all of college football. And where Jimbo Fisher always tries to be great, and where he excels is winning the line of scrimmage. And if you look at best offensive line and best defensive line, Michigan is right up there with Georgia in that category. So I think the Wolverines are going to be right there in the thick of it. Next is going to be USC. And I got to be honest with you. I struggled putting USC in here, but I think just what we saw with Caleb Williams and just what we saw with Lincoln Riley last year, they have to, but I'll tell you this, if there's any sort of injury, even if he's playing through it, it won't work. He's got to be fully healthy all year long. The one thing that's going to be interesting is Mario Williams now coming in here. Mario Williams is such a great player, um, and he's going to be a starter on this team. Uh, this offense is just going to be absolutely electric. The question for Oklahoma is going to be the transfers coming in on the defensive side of the ball. They are bringing in six transfers that are expected to start on the defense, and this defense last year was absolutely awful. And if you look at the players that were actually recruited out of high school to USC, and if you just look at the projected depth chart, they only have five players total. They didn't transfer at one point to USC. It's a bunch of transfers. Can you win with that? You know, I think it's very interesting. I think it's kind of like college basketball in the one and done. I'm okay if you've got one or maybe two one and dones, but the fabric of your team better be recruited players. That's going to be USC's biggest weakness is being able to win with transfer players. But Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams is going to keep them in a lot of games, be a lot of back and forth games. Again, Mario Williams was excellent last year. He'll be excellent again this year. Um, I'll, I'm going to put USC in there for now, but I'd love to see some improvement on that defense. All right. Next is LSU. I, I don't understand the Brian Kelly hate. I, I just don't get it. First year LSU SEC championship and they beat Alabama in the middle of the year. How are we not acknowledging Brian Kelly as one of the best coaches right now in the game? Now, do I think he's Kirby Smart or Nick Saban or really even Dabo? May, probably not, but he's top five, top 10 in the country, hands down. And if you look at LSU, Jaden Daniels last year took a massive leap. This offense was really, really good. They've got good players on the defensive side of the ball. If that piece continues to improve, LSU is going to be really tough. The only thing is, is the LSU schedule. LSU schedule is just absolutely brutal this year. Um, I'm going to pull it up just to run through some games. So they're going to start off at Florida State. That's tough. They're going to go to Ole Miss on September 30th. That one's absolutely brutal, too, because Ole Miss is bringing in Spencer Sanders. Like, I mean, the Ole Miss offense is going to be absolutely electric. And then they have to go at Alabama. And then to end the year, they're going to get Texas A&M at home. I, I think LSU is somewhere around 10-2, and 11-1. and 1, 
But there's so many opportunities for where they could get tripped up. I mean, even take the Auburn game, which is at LSU. LSU should be favored. But if you look at the big games on their schedule, that one's not even in the top three. You can't overlook a team like Auburn, though. So this is a tough schedule. I do think LSU, though, will get through it. They're in my championship window. But if they ended up finishing like nine and three, I really wouldn't be shocked. And then there's Clemson. Um, I was very reluctant to put Clemson in there. But Clemson, I think, is going to be significantly improved on the offensive side of the ball. First, Cade Klubinick comes in at quarterback. He should be a drastic improvement from DJ Uyengalay. Um, Will Shipley comes back at running back. Will Shipley could be arguably up there with Blake Corum as the best running back in college football this year. He's going to be in that category. And then they have Bo Collins um, at, at receiver. And Bo Collins is just absolutely electric. I fully expect he's going to make some huge strides this year. And the rest of this Clemson offense is going to be really, really good. Clemson's defense was already one of the best in the ACC last year. I would expect that to continue again this year. And then you look at what they're doing on the offensive coordinator side of the ball. And I'm blanking on his name. Let's see if I can find it here, but they're bringing in the offensive coordinator that was at TCU last year. He's really, really good. That is going to be huge for Clemson. That should that alone is going to improve this offense, not to mention the guys coming back, making the quarterback change. I expect Clemson to be right there in the thick of it. And then you look at Clemson's schedule, which let's pull that up here real quick, because Clemson's actually got a bit of a favorable schedule here for the most part. Let's, see, let's pull this up. All right. Now, we'll say this, and again, I'm a little bit biased on this, Clemson starting the year off at Duke, a little bit of a trap game. Monday night game at Duke. Duke last year went nine and four. That's a good football team. Now, I think Clemson wins it. I think they win it going away, but it would not shock me if we're at like halftime. And remember that Clemson Georgia Tech game last year that was so close at the start. That again, I wouldn't be shocked if we had a repeat. They're going to get Florida State September 23rd. That's at home. Getting that game at home is massive because Florida State's going to be in the top 10 this year. That's a great team. If you look at the rest of the schedule, at NC State, NC State's probably going to take a little bit off of what they were last year, losing Devin Leary. Notre Dame, they get at home. I don't even think Notre Dame is that great of a team this year. I think they're way overhyped. They get UNC at home. So Drake May, they're not going to have to go to uh, Chapel Hill to play. They'll get them at home. And the game at the end of the year is their toughest one at South Carolina. But I'll throw this at you. Even if they lose to South Carolina last game of the year, they're going to get the ACC championship game to make that up. And because the ACC is going away from divisions, even if they lose to Florida State, they could get the ACC championship game again to make it up, which means, which I don't think they will lose to Florida State twice, which means this team's probably going to end up 11-2 and two worst case scenario, which pushes them right into the playoff. I think Clemson's going to be really good. I expect them to return to glory this year. They're in that championship window or championship belt, if you will. Now, here's the other teams that did not get into my championship belt. Ohio State. And we're going to talk about them when Ben and I do our top 10 preview. This is the first year Ryan Day 
has not had a five-star quarterback as his starter. Kyle McCord and Devin Brown were both four-star quarterbacks. That, I think, is going to be rough. Now, again, they've got the best receiving core in college football. They've had that for the past, like, four years. Nothing about that's different. It's still a great receiving core. I, I just don't see, like, and I think you have to look at Ryan Day's lack of success against Jim Harbaugh. Um, they lost the game last year to Georgia, which you say, okay, they played Georgia closer than anybody else. That's true. But they also should have beaten Georgia, and they didn't. And the reason they didn't was they really didn't do a good job controlling the last five to seven minutes of that game. They had a double-digit lead and let Georgia storm right back. Um, I question Ryan Day's late-game decision-making. I also think no C.J. Stroud. There would have been a couple of losses this year without him. Kyle McCord, I don't think, is a great replacement for C.J. Stroud. He might be a good quarterback. He's not a great replacement for him. So Ohio State's not in my championship belt. Florida State is another one. Now, Florida State has the roster to where they should probably be on my championship belt. But this schedule is just, there's so many opportunities for them to lose. It starts off first game of the year. They're going to play LSU. Now, Florida State's really good. LSU's better. I don't know that they can win that game at home. Then they're going to get Clemson in literally week four at Clemson. Brutal game. Later on in the year, they're going to travel to Wake Forest. Wake Forest has been known to pull off big upsets at home. Pittsburgh, same thing, and that's the week after Wake Forest. Then they're going to end the year going to the Swamp to play Florida. If that game were at home, I'd feel like Florida State wins all day. I still feel like Florida State's the better team, but the fact that they have to go to the Swamp in-state rivalry, I just don't feel like Florida State. I just don't feel confident enough in them winning that. And for them to get into the playoff, they're going to have to beat LSU or Clemson. Well, let's just say they beat one of those. I don't think they win both, but let's say they win one. They're going to have to win the ACC championship on top of it, or they're probably playing Clemson again. I just don't see them winning. Uh, if you said LSU, Clemson twice, can Florida State win two out of three? I don't think they can. So Florida State, I don't think can get in just because of the schedule being as tough as it is. Um, another one, Tennessee. Everybody keeps telling me how great Joe Milton is, but Joe Milton uh, was pretty much booted from Michigan because he wasn't good enough to cut the quarterback room. They went with J.J. McCarthy instead. He goes to Tennessee. Tennessee brings in Hendon Hooker from Virginia Tech and says, you're the guy. And it was pretty evident last year they made the right decision in doing that. Um, so is Joe Milton a great quarterback? You know, I don't really know. Josh Waple, is he a great coach? I don't really know. I look at a lot of Tennessee last year, and I feel like Hendon Hooker actually might be a whole lot better than anybody gave him credit for and probably should have been a first-round quarterback. He feels like, if you just look at his build, the way he plays, I feel like he was a whole lot more valuable than anybody ever really talks about. I'm not sure what Tennessee's going to be this year without him. Um, and two, Tennessee's defense last year, absolutely pathetic. I mean, it was just awful. So I don't know. I mean, can they improve on defense? Like they allowed South Carolina to score 70 points. Can they improve on defense? Is Joe Milton really a good quarterback or is it just most hype? I, I'm not in on Tennessee just yet. Um, Utah is another one. Every year I feel like Utah should be a playoff team. And then they start off the year like 0-2. I, I, I just... I. I don't get it. So I'm not putting them in my playoff um, or my championship window this year. The other thing is 
their schedule, and a lot of this comes down to schedule, your capacity to get to 11 and one, which it's been proven, that's what it typically takes to get into this playoff. Utah schedule is just ridiculously tough. They're going to play at Baylor, possible loss. They're going to play at Oregon State, possible loss. At USC, probable loss. Oregon at home, I, I flip a coin. Washington at Washington, flip a coin on that one too. Not to mention you're going to get Arizona the week after. Arizona is kind of this flying under the radar, much improved team from last year that ended up winning five games when everybody thought they were like the worst team in the conference. And then they're going to get Colorado to end the year. Now they should beat Colorado. But if Deion Sanders is actually a good coach, Colorado is going to be a much better team by week 12 than they were in week two and week three. So that Colorado games are really tough. And I haven't mentioned UCLA. UCLA is coached by Chip Kelly. UCLA has got an explosive offense. Like I think, I really think Utah is going to be a very, very good team, um, especially with Cam Rising coming back. I mean, that kid is absolutely electric one of the best quarterbacks in the game but i don't feel like again it just feels like they're always coming up short i don't think utah is in that championship window texas is another one you're losing the best running back you've had potentially at the school in 20 plus years just don't think you're replacing it that well steve sarkeesian struggles in big games we saw that multiple times he struggles with late game decision making is he a better offensive coordinator than he is a coach? I'm not sure. So I'm not going to put Texas in there. And then there's uh, Oregon. Um, and Oregon always just feels like there are a few players, especially on the line, a few players short of being great. And is Bo Nix, is he reliable enough to win those big games? You know, we all were looking forward to that Oregon-Georgia game at the start of the year. And yeah, it's in Georgia. So we feel like, okay, Georgia's probably going to win probably about 14 to 17 points. It was over by the end of the first quarter. It wasn't even a game. Georgia was just crushing them. And Bo Nix looked awful. I, I mean, awful in that game. So I expect Bo Nix, when they played California or Washington State. I'm sure he'll probably light it up and look great, but the second they have to play a tough team, I don't expect Bo Nix to show up and be great. So I, I expect Oregon to be somewhere around 9-10 wins. They do not feel like a championship window team. All right. There's your fourth string podcast. We will be back um, in a couple weeks with Ben on the pod, which I'm excited to bring him back. And when we start getting into these uh, previews, it's one of my favorite times of the year. We both get Phil Stills College Football Magazine. We both read through it. Um, it just, I, I do an insane, like way too much research than it is even necessary. Um, and it's one of my favorite things to read. So like, I'm going to get that magazine, hang out my library, highlight a bunch of stuff, and uh, just have a ton of fun with it. And then Ben and I are going to blow you guys up with our podcast here in a couple weeks. And then we start our conference previews as we lead up to the college football season. It feels crazy to me that that's where we are, but it excites me nonetheless. So we'll be back. Have a great day. Fourth string podcast.